Well, I'd say it's so great to see all of you here today, and I apologize for myself if I look a little bit tired. My wife and I had the opportunity last night to go to Fayetteville and minister to a lot of friends in lonely places. (laughs) It was pretty cool. The thunder rolled, and I thought I was going to feel shameless, but I, you know, anyway, tell you, guy can put on a concert. Well, welcome to New Life Christian Church. If you are if you are back with us today because you came last week on Easter and, and you're back, I'm like, man, welcome back. We're so glad that, that you are here. And if this is your first time, even that, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I hope we get a chance to get to know you better and tell you a bit about our church. God's doing some great things here. We are starting a brand new series today called Botched. And the subject matter that we are going to be covering over the next couple of weeks really had, I'm just going to say it had its inspiration during our, our 26 weeks in the book of Genesis. And uh, during that series, I, I shared this with you several times that I, you know, there's so much there. We could have spent several years in Genesis. I, I've often joked with people like, man, I just feel like we left a lot of meat on that bone when it came to the book of Genesis. And so, you know what, you guys just continue to dive into that. But, but some of that, some of that stuff that just kind of, kind of kept coming up and like, man, I wish we could take more time to just dive into that um, was this idea of, of failure and redemption. You know, it just kind of came up over and, and over again. Um, I would say even if you start with the first couple pages of the Bible, you, you start to see this. Adam and Eve in the garden and, and they, they introduce sin into the world. And, and let me tell you, we've done a pretty good job messing it up ever since. You just read a couple more pages into the Bible. You see that God destroyed the earth because of the wickedness of mankind. And you keep going that, that uh, even that right there, you have Noah after that. What do we find out with him? He wasn't perfect. What? He ended up getting drunk on the wine and passed out in his tent and like, oh, we're dealing with some of these problems again. Then you just kind of move down through the pages of the book of Genesis. You know, Abraham, you know, he was a great man, but he, he wasn't perfect. Uh, one of his most notable trip-ups is when he got impatient with God. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And he got tired of waiting, and he actually had a child with another woman. Then you have his son Isaac, who got afraid one time, and then he lied to everybody and said his, his wife was his sister, and it got, created all kinds of problems. His dad did the same thing. And then where do we even start with Jacob? I don't even know where we start with Jacob. All the times he, he messed up. But, but I mean, this is this, this, uh, this, this concept of just where people fail, and then they're redeemed. I mean, I'll tell you, I appreciate the fact that Genesis, and I hope you appreciate this too, that, that Bible book did not sugarcoat anybody. They were real people. They dealt with real life situations. They, they uh, were real people, real facts, real places, real sin. And I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't just gloss over it. It deals with their failure. But you know what I'm really happy about as well? The Bible also speaks as much about their redemption. And not how they got knocked down, but also about how they got back up. And you know, this thing, this over and over, not just in Genesis, but throughout the whole Bible, it's just something I feel like God wants us to spend a little bit of time with here as a church. Because there's things that I see in Adam and Eve. I see things in Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I go, some of the things that they were dealing with, boy, they are just as pertinent as what we deal with today. And there's many of the same kind of similarities. So that's where this series got its nucleus, if you will. And I believe God wants us to spend some time talking about our failures, but not as much as I believe he wants us to talk about redemption. Uh, God loves a good comeback story, and that's what a lot of this series is, is going to be all about. Botched. How do you define botched? Well, there's a lot of ways that somebody could define botched, or they could describe what botched is. You know, I rarely say this, but I'm going to say it today. 
I like Webster's definition of box. I don't say that very much, but I was looking at what people have written about it. I think Webster's defines for us this word about as good as anywhere. Botched means this, spoiled by mistakes. It's a very simple definition. What does it mean to botch? It means it's spoiled by mistakes. And you know what? Spoiled by mistakes is exactly what some Christians feel like. And I would imagine that we all have those moments in our lives even those who have been Christians for a lot of years where it would be so easy to entertain the notion that I have blown it so severely that God can't use me and there's no hope for restoration for me anymore. Botched. Let's be honest with one another. I think we should be honest in church. That it's highly likely that we all face these feelings from time to time, especially when we fail or dwell on things that happened long ago. So there's this question that I think we need to wrestle with as a church. Came up in the book of Genesis, I think God wants us to wrestle it down as a church family together. And the question is this, is failure fatal? Is failure fatal? In other words, can I mess up so bad? Are my mistakes so severe that I have spoiled my faith? And there's some questions that just kind of trail behind this line of thinking as well. Like, does God still love me? Can I be of any real use to the Lord from this point forward? I would not be shocked at all. In fact, I'm not, because I've talked to many of you. But I would not be shocked at all. If there are a number of people right here in this room who wrestled with their own actions and they've wondered, have I spiritually blocked, blocked, botched my faith so severely that I might not make it to heaven? Anybody feeling that way right now? Or have, have any of you slipped into this, and this is so easy to do, slipped into this, I made a mistake, and now I have to kind of gain God's favor again all over again. I gotta kind of work my way back into his good graces so he's be proud of me again. And the question is, is that God's nature? Is that how God sees things according to what we know from Scripture? I can tell you that when I am tempted to sometimes think this way, I draw strength from God's word. I draw strength from what I would say some of our greatest heroes of faith who have blown it. In the, man, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. Who have blown it. And, and honestly, you look at some of their failures and honestly, I'm like, it's kind of natural to say, God has every right to turn his back on you when you read it. But that's not really God's nature. Because our God is about redemption. And there's these stories in the Bible that remind us that when we fail, God loves a great comeback story, doesn't he? It's not just about the failure, it's about the comeback. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a few examples from the Bible that, that really just teach us and, and prove that failure doesn't have to be fatal. So I hope you got your Bible today, and I'd like you to turn to Psalm 51, if you will. Psalm 51, it's in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 51, we see what I would say one of the most notorious botched moments in all of Scripture. Psalm 51, if you're very familiar with the Psalms, you know that Psalm 51 is kind of a famous Psalm. You know, there's some Psalms that have just kind of risen up to the forefront of people's mind. This one is a really famous one. It was written by um, King David. And he wrote this Psalm after he was confronted 
by a prophet named Nathan confronting David about an affair that he had with a married woman named Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is really a prayer of, uh, that deals with this idea of forgiveness. Here you have a psalm. You have a man who wrote down his feelings about what he had done. And there's a little bit of a glimpse into a, a prayer life of a man who we know from the rest of Scripture loved God deeply, but he was also a man who at the same time botched up his life significantly, I would say quite incredibly. For those of you that may not be as familiar with the Old Testament as others, King David is one of the most prominent individuals that you're going to read about in the Old Testament. Even to this day, you visit the Holy Land, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to see signs, you're going to hear things about King David all these years later. He was hand-chosen by God to be Israel's king. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, and he certainly was that. But if you know much about King David, he did not live a perfect life. In fact, he was far from perfect, and the Bible tells us all about it. Now, I'm going to invite you on your own to read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. Those are the two chapters that detail um, all the nitty-gritty of what he did wrong. Again, this is not a series about failure as much as it is about your comeback story so we're not going to dwell on some of those things, but I do want to invite you to learn all about it. And I'm going to just briefly summarize it for you. But this is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You see, David, he came onto the scene when he was very young. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard pieces of this story before. He went out to go visit his brothers who were all fighting in the army. And he gets out there and he finds an army that's scared to death. And why are they scared? Because the Philistines, which is the enemy army, they had this one soldier who was a mammoth giant of a man named Goliath. And he would make fun of the Israelites and he would taunt God. And David's like, who's going to stand up? And they're like, oh, we're not going to, we're too afraid. And David's like, I'll fight him. If you know the story, David went out there with a little more than a slingshot and a couple rocks and he takes down this giant. We know this story. It's David versus Goliath. And so since that moment, David's name became somewhat known. And then years later, he becomes king of Israel. And, and you, I'll tell you, there's so many details about his life. You should dive into all of them. But there's this moment, and this is where we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. The Bible tells us that David as king was walking along the rooftop of his palace. And if you know anything about that part of the country, it's pretty common to have flat roofs. And when it cools off at night, people hang out up there. And he's walking along the palace and he sees something he shouldn't see. He looks a few rooftops over and he sees this woman taking a bath. And David does not do what he should have done. He should have done one of these. About face, we're going to walk this way. <laughs> but he didn't do that. In fact, uh, he stared and he watched. And then he sent people to go find out all about her. One thing leads to another and he ends up with her. She's a married woman, and he finds out really quick that he got her pregnant. Now all of a sudden, we've got, this whole thing got ramped up even more. He's like, I gotta figure this out. And, and, he, and her husband, his name is Uriah, and he is one of David's mighty men. There's a little deeper dive study for you. Look up sometime who David's mighty men were. These weren't your everyday soldiers. These were David's dudes. They were beyond field team six. They are Navy SEALs times everybody else. David's mighty men. And her husband is one of these guys. And so he's out fighting David's war. 
And so he sends word out to the battlefield, have Uriah come home, and David, here's David's grand scheme. I'm gonna have him come home, give him a couple days of R&R, get a little caught up on the war, let him spend a few nights with his wife, send him back out to fight, and no one will know. And so Uriah comes home, and you're gonna love Uriah. He's like, how can I go home and be with my wife when all my men are out there shedding their blood? I'm not gonna do it. Don't you like Uriah? He's a man's man. I'm not gonna do it. David's like, you gotta go home. No, you don't understand. Your wife really wants to see you. And he's like, I'm not gonna do it. And so David's like, okay. I'll, I'll, and so he gets Uriah drunk. And Uriah still won't do it. And then finally David's like, he's not gonna go be with her. So he, what he does, he goes, all right, Uriah, here's some orders. I want you to take him out to my army leader. And, uh, and what he actually handed Uriah was his death sentence. So, he, so Uriah hands the orders over to Joab. And Joab reads them and he's like, Uriah, you're on the front lines today. I want you to go in where the fighting is the most fierce and he dies, which is exactly what David wanted. Word comes back, he finds out Uriah has died. Bathsheba needs to mourn him for seven days. And after that, David marries her and it all fits in the timetable where nobody would be suspicious and David comes out looking like the hero of the story. She lost her husband, a mighty man, but wonderful David takes her in and know what David does? He gives her a son, the king's son. And David's like, whew. Dodged a bullet on that one. But he didn't. Fast forward a couple months. We know this, right? You can't hide anything from God. Not even David can hide anything from God. Fast forward. Fast forward a number of months. Bathsheba is either quite pregnant now or, or has had her son. And David gets a visit from Nathan, the prophet, which is common. God used prophets all the time to deliver messages to the king, and this is normal behavior. And David's like, Nathan, what message do you got for me? And Nathan's like, well, I come with a story. And the story was about a rich man who had tons of stuff and a poor man who had one animal, and the rich man took the poor man's one animal and ate him for dinner. And David goes, how dare he do that? He needs to be killed for, I want, I want an accounting right now. And Nathan says some of the most famous words you're gonna read in the Old Testament. He goes, David... And this is also one of the bravest moments you're ever gonna read in the Old Testament. He says, David, you are the man. David, you are the guy I'm talking about. You're the rich man who's got everything and you took. You are the man. And the Bible talks about when, when David hears these words, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. He's just crushed. He's just absolutely crushed. And you know what David says? He goes, I have sinned against the Lord in that moment. I I did this. And what I appreciate about this moment in David's life is it's not like he's saying, it's not my fault. What was I supposed to do? I'm I'm just a a warm-blooded male. What am I supposed to do? It's her fault. She shouldn't be bathing on the roof. No, 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 that's not what he said. That's mine. That's on me. I have sinned against the Lord. I'll tell you something. There's this part of David's story, this moment that's kind of frozen in time that is um, basically this spotlight truth that I think we all instinctively know, but sometimes it's just good to say it. It's this right here. David reminds me that you can be a man or a woman after God's own heart and still sin. I mean, he's he's a spotlight example of it. You can be a man or woman after God's own heart and still sin. Now I say that not as a free pass to sin. It's not certainly not one of these, 
well, it's going to happen. What am I supposed to do? I don't mean it like that. But it's an acknowledgement that ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden and they introduced sin in the world, mankind's been fighting sin and temptation his whole life. Even in the New Testament, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and all fallen short of glory of God. I think sometimes there's this belief out there among Christians that because I'm a Christian, it means I'm never gonna make a mistake, I'm never gonna sin again. But friends, let me just tell you, no one's ever been able to pull that off except for Jesus. Jesus was the only one that could ever go through a day, an hour, and not sin. No one's been able to pull that off but him. We cannot be perfect. And you know, I'll tell you, if you're here looking for a church today, you're looking for a group of believers to do life with, and you're looking for a perfect group of people and making a perfect church, you're not gonna find it here. You're, you're not gonna find a perfect church. They don't, they don't exist, because perfect people don't exist. The kind of people you are gonna find here at New Life Christian Church is you're gonna find a congregation of faulty people. You're, you're gonna find a, a, a bunch of faulty people starting with their pastor who are finding healing and forgiveness in God's grace and mercy. And we range the spectrum. We're all over the map from above average to failing when it comes to our own faith, when it comes to our understanding of the, the Bible, um, our own personal witness to the lost. I mean, we are definitely a fellowship of the imperfect, but we are desiring to grow. We are people who want to fulfill God's purposes in our lives and through this church. That's the kind of people that we are. So David's story reminds us that uh, you can be a man or woman after God's own heart and still sin. You know what else this little moment frozen in time um, teaches me about, about, about God and about our lives? It's this that our sin doesn't prevent God from, from giving us the most remarkable gift that he can give, forgiveness. The things that we do to botch up our lives does not stop God from offering forgiveness. So in 2 Samuel 2.13, when, when David said, I've sinned against the Lord, in the very same verse, Nathan the prophet replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. And I wonder, how wonderful were those words from Nathan into, into David's ear? How wonderful that had to be. So there's this question that kind of hovers over this. Is sin fatal? Can God forgive somebody like me? And in the backdrop or in the shadow of David's story, the answer has to be what? Yes, he can. And he does. The Bible speaks all about God's forgiveness and he's described like the father in the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who is there with arms wide open, ready to offer forgiveness. But listen, God is that way when we acknowledge our sin and we don't try to rationalize it away. Remember, David's like, I did this, I have sinned. He didn't blame anybody else. One of the greatest promises you're gonna read in all the scriptures found in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we come clean and we like spill it before the Lord, Lord, I did this, I am that guy. If we confess our sins, he, Lord, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you something. How we respond to our sin is of utmost importance to God. How you respond to it. The Lord already knows everything in your heart and mind, but he wants to know if you know. 
that something has changed in your heart. He wants to see somebody who's humble and teachable and willing to learn from mistakes. So I can tell you what God is not interested in. He is not interested in the proud. And he's not interested in the defensive. And he's not interested in those who want to blow off their sin as if they're oblivious to God's love and mercy. No, 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 my friends. God wants to know what's in your heart. He wants to know if you're humble. He wants to know if you're teachable. If you're willing to learn, he wants to know if something is different on the inside. You know, as I see it, David, how he responded to his sin was the difference between whether it was going to be fatal or not. How he responded to it. David owned it. He admitted it. Now, the wonderful thing about this moment here in David's life is is we know a whole lot more about what he was feeling emotionally than just what we read about in 2 Samuel 12. In fact, David went and he got his pen and he wrote down, this is what I'm going through in Psalm 51. You still have it there on your lap. It's one of the most transparent Psalms that you're going to read in all of them. And uh, this is what he wrote after Nathan came and said, you are the man. You ready? Look at verse one. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Is it any more obvious what he wants and how he's feeling? I mean, man, this he's putting it down in in pen and paper. He said, verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You hear the man saying, "I, I know I blew it. And you're absolutely right, God. Anything you want to do to me, you are justified. I deserve it. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What an incredibly powerful psalm to a man who was literally crying out to God about his sin. And there's a lot there that we could unpack, but as I read through there, I see that that David is kind of making four requests and he's getting four answers as he's requesting them. And I want to point them out to you really quick. David makes this request in this psalm for wisdom. You can look at it in verse six. He's like, God, I need wisdom, and God gives him wisdom. He says in verse six, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now to me, I read that and it's like David is admitting that uh, he has not been honest, 
There are parts of life that he has been hiding. There's been things he's been doing to cover up his own sin. And he's like, this has not been a wise thing for my life. Think about the timeline. We're talking about a year or so in time. Went from the start to finish of between his sin and when Nathan comes to confront him. At least nine months, somewhere in that vicinity. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to hide your sin? And the answer from 100% of us is yes. Every last one of us. Have you ever lied or stole? Perhaps you went somewhere you weren't supposed to go. Or you saw some things that you know you should not see. Have you been unfaithful to your spouse? Have you been drunk? Do you get drunk? What sin do you try to cover up? You know, perhaps even right now, you might be in this spot where you're like, man, I'm just, I feel so bad about what I've done. Maybe even overwhelmed by guilt. And you're like, I don't want to think about it anymore. I didn't come to church to think about it. We're going to be honest. Maybe you haven't repented and you know it. I'm going to tell you, you're more like David than what you realize. You're going to see even more here in just a minute. That's what David tried to do. It's almost like there's a year of his life that he's like, can I just forget? Can we just move on? Can everybody just get along? Can we just move forward? I don't like this. And, and I, I do believe that when you read the rest of this psalm, and other, there's something eating away at him. Psalm chapter 32 is another psalm that David wrote in response to his sin with Bathsheba. And he says this in, in chapter 32, verse 3. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I think David is coming to this life-changing conclusion in his life. There's just no wisdom in hiding my sin from God. There's no wisdom in it. He's saying, Lord, what I did was stupid. There's this ownership there. I was foolish to look upon Bathsheba. It was foolish to lust after her. I was foolish to go to bed with her. I was foolish to try to hide what I did. I was foolish, really foolish, to have her husband killed I think this is David saying, regardless of how appealing that was in the moment or how pleasurable that it may be, there's just no, no wisdom in sinning. It's only stupidity and then trying to hide it from God. And David, what I think he's asking for in this psalm is like, Lord, I need some wisdom to overcome my stupidity, not just right now, but in the future as well. And he wants God, please give me some wisdom. And then he makes another request. He makes a request for purity. He's like, I want to be pure. Something has shifted. We've moved from pure to impure. And there's a definite shift that he knows. So look at verse seven. He says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. So here's what he's admitting. What I did with Bathsheba and everything else that came with it, it just makes me feel dirty. That's what he's owning. I I feel it. I feel dirty. Do you remember the first time you ever felt dirty because of a sin? That's David. Do you feel dirty right now? It's probably because there's some kind of sin that you've been hiding. And it needs to come, you need to come clean to the Lord about this. So he says, cleanse me. I don't feel clean anymore. And so he says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. 
What in the world is hyssop? What in the world is he talking about? That doesn't register to us here today. Hyssop was a spongy-like plant that grows in the Middle East. Sometimes you can even find some of it on the walls around the temple, and, and it's, just, it's pretty common. And hyssop has been used. We read about it through the Old Testament. It's used for all kinds of things, but primarily it has something to do with cleansing. You might remember uh, the story of the Exodus during the, the plagues, and uh, the Lord told all the, the Hebrews to put blood on their, door, in their doorpost, and the death angel will come over. Well, he told them to do that, to apply that blood with the hyssop plant. So it's like, imagine it's kind of like a paintbrush, and that's what they use to, to cover the blood. And, and, and so there's this stuff that has to do with a cleansing. So like if it, we learn in the Old Testament that if somebody gets defiled or they become unclean because they touched a dead body, which is an Old Testament thing, they had to use hyssop as part of their defilement. Kind of like, like, like I got to undo this. So this plant was used for that. Um, this plant was used for all kinds of different things, medical, everything else, but it just is associated with cleansing. People in the Old Testament sometimes try to take hyssop and, cl- and cleanse people of leprosy. It was just common knowledge. This plant and becoming clean are connected. So this is David just saying, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. You know, I've been married to my wife now for almost 23 years. And there are things that my wife has exposed me to that I am convinced that if I never got married, I would never know it existed. All right, I'm just gonna say this. So my wife introduced to me to a new word one time that, like I said, I'm convinced I'd have never figured this out on my own. And the word is exfoliation. Okay? So all the guys like, what? So a few years into our marriage, my wife walked by me and she kind of grabbed my elbow. You know that little thing right there, that piece? And she goes, man, you need to exfoliate. And I responded by saying two things. I said, no, I don't. And what is exfoliate? And so that's the... It was my typical male response. She goes, no, 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 your elbow's a little bit rough, and I, I didn't even know they were rough. I don't know. If we don't have ladies in our lives to point these things out to us, how are we ever gonna know that we have rough elbows? That's not something we think about. So anyway, she says, I got something for you. She gives me this bar of soap that, I, it's, it's, it's sandpaper soap, it's what it is. It's, a, it's this bar of soap, and it's got BBs in it, and it's like, so she's like, she's like just, and so I'm like, all right, so I'm in the shower, and I'm like, whoo. And sure enough, my elbows came out as smooth as a baby's bottom. Let me tell you, maybe not quite that smooth, but I'm like, ooh, that brand, brand new. Do you know what exfoliating is? Exfoliating is, and this is everybody, you have skin that dies all the time, and sometimes it gets rough, and what exfoliate does, it just is, it removes that old top layer of dead skin that gets sometimes flaky, and it's annoying, and it removes it so that the new, brand new, moisturized skin underneath can come out and do what skin is supposed to do. I think this, David said, cleanse me with hyssop. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I think a modern day parallel I would be, God, exfoliate me. That's what I need. Get rid of all this dead, old, clingy dirtiness, and Lord, please expose what is clean, fresh, and brand new that's just dying to come out. David said, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He said this because he feels dirty and stained, and, and I don't care what sins you have committed. God can take those sins that have dirtied and soiled your soul and he can wipe them all away. 
That is the cleansing power that God offers. So David's like, that's what I want. I want to be clean again. So upon his repentance, he is pure once again, and he asks for wisdom, and he asks for pure, all this stuff. And then the third thing I see in Psalm 51 is David makes this request for joy. Did you catch that when we read it together? He makes a request for joy. Look at verse eight. He says, let me hear, the, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. You know how loaded this one verse is? I mean, he feels the crushing weight of what he has done. And he goes, I just want to hear joy. Do you realize you can hear joy? Do you know what joy sounds like? Joy sounds like laughter. Joy sounds like people getting along. Joy sounds like moving through life in a happy way. And and it's merry and all of those things. And he goes, I want to, I want to, I can't hear that right now. And we ask the question, what has David been hearing? Now, this is all speculation just a little bit. This is climbing into his shoes and go, what would I be hearing? What is he hearing, actually? Instead, he's not hearing joy and happiness. What is he hearing? Well, I have no doubts that there were plenty of times over the months of Bathsheba's pregnancy, he had to hear her cry herself to sleep over the death of her husband. Did she understand the full details of what went down? I doubt it. So that's what he's hearing. What else is he hearing? I think David is hearing the rumors of what people are saying. You know, he tried to cover all this stuff up and for a year now he's trying to keep it all himself, but there are people too new. I mean, going back to the beginning, he did send people out to find out who she is and somebody noticed her coming to his place one night. I mean, he did send orders out to the field that had to be carried out. There are people that know and people are not dumb. They can see what's going on. They can count the months. I think he's hearing whispers and rumors throughout his palace. That's what he hears. What else is he hearing? I think David had to live every day with the groan, internal groan of his own conscience. He knows what God's word says. He does. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. So here you have at least nine months. David refuses to acknowledge his sin and repent. And what I think this verse in this psalm is acknowledging is that I've been pretty miserable. You crushed my bones. I just want to hear joy again. Let me hear gladness. Friends, none of us are perfect, and I hope you don't walk away from this message today thinking that I'm saying anybody is. But you can be a man or woman after God's own heart, and you can still botch things up really bad. But when that happens, let me offer this. Do the exact opposite of David. Don't let it linger, but repent quickly. Because David let this thing linger for at least nine months, long enough for a baby to be born, and, and even the joy of the birth of a new son cannot drown out what he's hearing. And isn't that sad? Because I, I want to be joyful again. It wasn't until he owned his sin that any of this could return. And it took him about a year to get there. Don't let that be you. Don't allow sin to go unrepented for this long. Repent quickly because it robs our joy. And it drove David to the point to ask God to bring it back. 
So finally, so wisdom, purity, and joy is what he's asking for. And he finally asks for one more thing. He asks for forgiveness. He makes a request for forgiveness. Look at verse nine again. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. What he's saying is, God, can we get to the point, is it possible, Lord, to get to the point where I can be forgiven and you'll go ahead and forget it? Like, can we get there? That's what he's asking. And I just want you to know, everything I can study from the Bible, I want you to know that forgiving and forgetting sins is what God does the best and it's what he delights in the most. Forgiving and forgetting. There are those people that look at their past sins or even the sins that might be going on in their life right now, and they think there's no way God can ever forgive somebody like me. They can't even forgive themselves, which is a whole nother sermon, friends. They can't even imagine. They can't even see enough. How could God ever do that for me? How could he ever forgive and forget? David knew he was unworthy. It comes out in his writings. All he wants God to do is forgive, and is there any possible way, God, that, that, that you could just take your big eraser and just wipe it clean? That's what he's wondering about. How do you think David felt when the Lord forgave him? Do you think he felt relieved? Better believe it. Overjoyed? Yes. Clean? Yes. And that's exactly how God wants every one of us to feel when we turn our sins over to him. And once you repent of your sins, God's not gonna bring it up again. The reason why I say that is because of other parts of the Bible. We're gonna, before we're done, I'm gonna share one more verse and then we're gonna be done. But in the Old Testament book of Micah chapter seven, this was written to the Israelite people and it's about judgment and all kinds of stuff. But, but he also writes about a characteristic that God has when it comes to sin. And again, this was written to the Israelites, but there's some parts about God's character that are universal. And this is what it says. Chapter seven, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is a characteristic of God. You'll hurl our, our, our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Do you understand what's being said here? Is that, 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 you know what the sea represents in the Bible? The sea represents a place of no return. This is long before deep sea submersibles and deep sea diving. This is, you go out to the, the, into the sea and something falls overboard, it's gone forever. This is an era when people get in a boat and they go out to sea and they go past the horizon. If they don't ever come back, they're not coming back. Because whatever, the, the, the sea swallowed them up. So there is this understanding when he says, you take our sins and you throw them out into the middle of the sea. What he's saying is, they're gone forever. That's what he says. That's, that's the characteristic about God. Heard about a preacher one time that uh, went to be a guest preacher at a church in another town. And he, after he delivered his sermon, there was a police officer in the town. And he said, hey, pastor, you got anything going on today? He said, not really. He goes, come fishing with me and my boy. We'll, we'll go fish all day. There's great fishing around here. He said, yeah, let's do it. So they went and they fished in one of the lakes. And then as the sun was going down, they, they pulled the boat up to the shore and they built a little campfire and they're just sitting around talking. And, and the, the man said to the preacher, he said, hey, I never told you how my son, who's 16, how he came to be adopted into my family. He said, you see, when my son was 10 years old, he ran away from the orphanage he was living in. 
And, and he just kind of lived around, bounced around, was on the street some. And then when he was 12, he had a pocket knife and he went into a grocery store and he tried to rob the grocery store with that pocket knife. And he said, how I met him was in juvenile and he was standing before the judge. He was 12 years old and the judge granted me some favor and warranted me the opportunity to take this boy home with me to try to mentor him and be a good influence in him. A year later, my wife and I were able to adopt him as our son. And here he is, 16 now. And the pastor, that's, that's an awesome story. And he goes, well, let me tell you how I deal with him. And the pastor, or the, the, the police officer pulled out of his pocket a pocket knife. And you see this knife? And he opened it up. He goes, this is the very knife that my son used to try to rob that grocery store. And whenever, whenever my son gets a little bit unruly, a little bit rebellious. He starts heading down the wrong road. I just, I pull out this pocket knife and I show it to him and I remind him where he came from. And the pastor looked over at the boy who was just looking down into the dirt and he saw in the boy's face unwanted, unloved, regret, and as the father talked, the son's face got more downcast. And the preacher finally interrupted. He said, hey, can I, can I ask you something? He goes, you know, as, we, as I study the Bible, the Bible says that God takes all of our sins and he throws them into the deepest sea, never to be heard from again. Do you think God brings them back every time we get a little unruly or we step out of line or need some correction? And the father, it was almost like a light bulb went off in his head. Never even thought about it. And the father said to the preacher, I said, uh, no, I, I guess God doesn't do that. And the preacher said, I don't think we should either. And, and, and the father took the pocket knife and he closed it. And he took a step like this. He looked over at his son. He said, I love you. And he threw that knife as far as he could out into the water. And he went and hugged his boy and he said, never again will I ever bring this back up again and remind you the way you used to be. You're my family now. You see, when God forgives, he takes your sin and throws it in the deepest part of the ocean. That's what it's like. And then he posts a sign on the shore that reads, no fishing allowed. <laughs> Is sin fatal? To answer that question in the, the first message in this series, I would say this, how you respond to sin is the determining factor of whether that sin is gonna be fatal or not. Dear God, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God of forgiveness. That, Lord, your word is so clear that you loved us so much that you sent your son. That, Lord, you actually, you stepped out of heaven and you walked this earth with us. And you taught people about the kingdom of God and what it means to be in your family and the dangers of sin and the way to live. And then, because only you could do this, God, because you were the perfect, innocent one. Like, I want you to be in my family. I want to fix this sin problem that started in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
and I'm going to fix it for good. And in that moment, Lord, when you gave your life for us, you became that sacrifice, that, that path to forgiveness by shedding your own blood on that cross. And in that moment, Lord, we know you took all the sins of the world, all the dirtiness, all the things that have ever been done and will be done. You took it upon you. Oh, and darkness covered the land and the earth shook in that moment. And Lord, you died. And the barrier between us and you was ripped apart. Three days later, Lord, you came back to life and proving that not even death, it's sin's worst consequence could hold you down and you rose to life, defeating our enemy once and for all. And Lord, now you just say, come, be a part of my family. I'm, you're like the father and the prodigal son, arms open wide, come, come with me, come follow me. Come be a part of what I'm doing. Follow me all the way to heaven, saved, sanctified, washed whiter than snow and Lord, we thank you that even when we mess up, your forgiveness is there. So Lord, help us to do what we're supposed to do. Repent quickly and own it and restore. So Lord, we just give you praise today. And I pray for anybody that's in this room today or watching online, that Lord, if there's sin that you've brought up to the surface, Lord, help us not push it back down. Lord, help us to own it before you. Lord, I pray we be repentant in front of you, Lord, and do today what took David a year to do, and that was repent. So, Lord, we give you praise. We lift up your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our Savior.